Faith Matters Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan. My name is John Moorhead, and this is the uh, video podcast of Multi-Faith Matters, which is the uh, friendlier name of the Evangelical Chapter of the Foundation for Religious Diplomacy. And uh, my guest again today is Charles Randall Paul, who is the founder and president of the Foundation for Religious Diplomacy. And uh, we've known each other for many years and have had a lot of rich conversations, and hopefully uh, we will do that again today. Randy, welcome to the conversation. Good to be here, John. Let me uh, kind of set things up as to what we're going to be talking about today. The last time you and I had a conversation, we were unpacking and introducing the concept of religious diplomacy, which is different than interfaith and, and some other approaches coexist and things that are out there. Um, we want to, to use that kind of approach and look at some of the challenges that we're facing today. Um, let me uh, draw people's attention to a couple of uh, interesting articles that have come across the internet lately in uh, Forbes magazine, Dan Porterfield wrote an article called uh, titled to build a pluralistic democratic America faith must be on the agenda. And that was a conversation with a Muslim scholar. And then uh, David Brooks uh, wrote a piece in the Atlantic titled uh, America is having a moral convulsion. Subtitle is levels of trust in this country in our institutions and in our politics and one another are in a precipitous decline. And when social trust collapses, nations fail. Can we get it back before it's too late? And uh, those kinds of articles and topics is where your heart beats, Randy, and mine. And uh, years ago, you and I were on an airplane coming back from an FRD conference in UCLA. And we were discussing religious diplomacy and, and uh, is, is, you know, is this gonna catch on Oh, and I, you were really sincere about wanting my feedback on that. And I said, yeah, but one of the frustrations I have is that uh, people tend not to be interested in interreligious conflict per se, or learning about other religious traditions in contrast with their own. Um, but the fascinating thing, and this is where we're going to start today, is people's religious convictions or their convictions about the, their ultimate concerns inform uh, just about all the social and political conflicts that we have in the public square today. Um, can you uh, begin our conversation today by, by addressing that issue, some of these ultimate concerns and how we all have them, even if we don't overtly recognize them? Sure. You just used the term that Paul Tillich, the famous uh, philosopher of religion, used at Harvard many, many years ago, ultimate concern. He tried to talk to a secularizing world back in the 50s about religion in a way that could connect with people who were not religious. And he basically said, every human being asks why. That's what human beings do. <laughs> they ask why. And when anyone asks why, they realize science doesn't have an answer. All the philosophers have tried to have an answer. Religious traditions claim they do have that answer of why the world exists and why we're here and in many cases where we're going. And so religion is part of the human nature that, that we ask why and we, we try to answer that question. And, and those questions are basically religious questions. Even secular people, in other words, have religious questions. They want to know why, what meaning do they have for their life? I prefer the word purpose than meaning. I could talk about that later. But the, um, the ultimate concern that every human being has basically comes down to a question of prioritizing the values that they have, prioritizing what they care most about in life, and coming up with some why for that prioritizing. And so whether you're listening to this as a uh, fervent believer in God or someone who's an agnostic or, or even an atheist, I think we can all come together 
on the fact that we have similar religious questions um, that that word religion now needs to be um, retrieved, I think, in a more general term for this 21st century, instead of chucking it uh, and everyone saying, well, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. I think it would be wise for everyone to say, every human being has a religious side and they need to admit that not only do we right, rightly ask questions of why, we come up with tentative answers with our, with our daily living. And interestingly enough, we tend to cluster around people who have similar answers. That's called organized religion. <laughs> and you, you can be organized in your religion and be down at the country club with your secular buddies, right? And, and all get along because you come to similar answers or similar questions that, that you're seeking answers for in many cases. Um, so I, I think I'd like to start off by saying, hey, everyone relax. When we use the word religion in this conversation today, we're saying it's relevant to every human being. It always has been. And the reason is it guides your life. Your basic values are your answers to these basic questions of why you exist and what you value most. And those answers guide your life, whatever you are. And um, so to say religion doesn't matter or it's irrelevant today is to miss that very big reality. So if I uh, hear you correctly, you're, you're acknowledging not only that people who would recognize themselves as overtly having religious commitments and maybe being a religious person, uh, even those who are atheists, agnostic, agnostic, skeptics, this kind of thing, they have ultimate concerns, again, to draw upon Tillich's language there. Um, for example, they, they will critique religious people for relying on their faith tradition rather than emphasizing rationality and the scientific method. That's an ultimate concern. That's a priority for them. And they draw upon that in drawing their conclusions in uh, determining their values. So maybe it's a, uh, we all have these ultimate sacred values, even secular people. Is that what you're getting at for us? Yep. That's what I'm saying. Okay. Uh, let's uh, just kind of make, make sure people understand what we're talking about here. What's fascinating to me is uh, it's frustrating as well. Working in interreligious conflict, religious diplomacy, I am frustrated that uh, it's difficult to get an audience uh, unless there's a particular news story that's going on. People have other priorities. If you look at social and political concerns and polls, uh, people just aren't interested in this topic in and of itself. But at the same time, uh, if you look at some of the issues that were divided over in the public square, global warming, abortion, uh, immigration. Most recently, uh, there were battles over a Supreme Court nominee who's now been confirmed to the Supreme Court. But what informs that and pops up in many of those debates are religious commitments. So are we, in a sense, by not addressing this, are we missing an important component in our conversations? Yes, I think um, years ago, John, when we started the foundation, we had this vision of, uh, of a kind of a New England square in which uh, on one side of the square was the church. On the other side of the square was the, the hotel or the commercial center. On the other side was the school, right? The education center. And then they had the town hall, the legislative center, right? And the thing about New England, of course, was the church was the congregational church, right? It, was, it, it created the solidity around that square of commerce, education, and um, um, the uh, the fourth the fourth unit. What did I say? Anyhow, that 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 fourth part of the society. Mm -hmm. um, the uh, uh, legislature, um, the governance. Um, the we said to ourselves, what we need to have now in our pluralistic time is a town polygon. Um, because there is no one church that, that anchors the legislative and the commercial and the education system. 
we have a pluralistic society. So a town polygon instead of a town square is what we have. And instead of having literally 20 sides to the polygon, uh, the Foundation for Religious Soci uh, Diplomacy said we need to replace the church with a center for the contestation of reality and values. <laughs> it's the pluralistic center on the square where all the people could come and make their claims for ultimate truth, make their claims for the highest values, uh, their ultimate concerns, and contest them there in a respectful center, and then come out of that and let whatever comes out of that contestation, whatever collaboration comes out of the contestation, then that can inform, of course, the commercial, the uh, uh, educational, and the uh, um, legislative aspect of life. And that's what we think America ha it has the potential to do, and we think it's going through that right now in its own way, realizing that pluralism is here to stay, that no one is going to have a monopoly. Uh, many years ago, of course, the, the, uh, the Protestant groups tried to, to cluster together with this notion of de denominationalism, mm -hmm. where they could get over all their vociferous disagreements and say, hey, we're going to lose our social influence with all our infighting. Let's create the idea of denominations of one Protestant America, right? And so um, that in the early 20th century was heavily um, under attack. And by the end of the 10th 20th century, we know what happened. Protestantism became itself just another religious form in America. And I, I don't need to go into the, the details of pluralism that everyone's aware of today. But I bring that all up to say the, the problem of contesting different worldviews that are not compatible is what we're facing at a deep level in our country today. Um, again, with this general idea of religion being a, a, a form of value creation that's, that's taken deeply and seriously by everybody, no matter where they are, how do we, when we have differences over those deep values, how do we engage? Do we just go, those idiots? Or, or, or maybe you're a little more charitable and you say, those foreigners, they just don't get it, right? Right. Um, if we have a society that literally cannot talk with each other because they don't believe each other can get it, we've got deep problems. We don't have a town square anymore where people can really respect each other in the legislatures, in the schools, and even in business. So um, our goal at foundation became one of diplomacy between these people with conflicting ultimate concerns so that they could with integrity live together by knowing each other's strong incompatible differences and yet still developing a trust between each other. I think the trust comes from the fact uh, and you get this in great marriage therapy, that you can actually expose your criticisms. You can expose your differences and not be threatened to be put out of business. Divorce is not on the table, even though I just told you I'm a Democrat and you're a Republican, right? Divorce right. is not on the table. If I've told you now I'm, an, I'm a skeptic, not a believer. There is something in the human, and I'll, call, I'll use the word soul, that allows it to say, I disagree with you over something that's extremely serious, and yet I still want a relationship with you. That's what we've got to have in America is this continual contestation that's allowed to happen in a very open way, at the same time building trust, because we will not force our ideas on each other. We will only try to persuade each other and never go into uh, coercion. That's where trust comes from, and I think that's what's lacking right now. We're, sh we're shaking it up. We're, we're, we're facing pluralism, <laughs> unlike we've ever really done before in America. We've had the theory there. <laughs> we've had the theory back there. You know, now we're facing it in such a radical way. We're going to see if the theory holds. Yeah, I, I don't know that uh, many folks realize the depth of the challenge that we face. Before we had this conversation, a 
mutual colleague of ours, Paul Lewis Metzger, uh, who does some work with the foundation as well with the evangelical chapter. He texted me an article from CNN uh, about the situation in France where you had uh, a, a teacher was uh, beheaded by, uh, for lack of a better term, an Islamic extremist. And now France is is having, again, this debate within itself, uh, wanting to be a secular nation, a large number of Muslim immigrants. And so they're wrestling with questions of secularism, pluralism, freedom of speech, uh, these kinds of things. Now, our situation may not be as dire as in France, but we've got our, our own challenges. You've got uh, evangelical Christian privilege seems to be waning. Uh, if the Trump administration goes away with this election cycle, there'll be a post-Trump era evangelicalism will have to re somehow try to rebuild its cred credibility. Uh, the numbers are down. You have uh, so-called minority religions that are wanting their place in the public square. And so we face our own challenges of wrestling with pluralism. It's far more complex than many of us realize. Some uh, proposals have been set forth as to how to deal with this. One is that we should aim for a so-called naked public square. That is, we'll just be secular. No one with religious convictions gets a, a voice. Everything will be secularized. And the other one says, no, we need the clothed pluralistic public square. So my questions to you are, is the naked square really naked? If we're privileging secularism, is that really a fair and equitable naked public square? And if it's not, and if we pref preference is some kind of way of wrestling with pluralism, how do we deal with these competing voices and values and, and all the conflicts that come about as a result. Great. Um, great lead into something I'd like to say. And I'm going to answer your question very directly, but please give me a moment to give a background. Sure. Um, in doing my, I started out my life in academia as a social psychologist and I quickly learned in small groups that when a group comes together um, with agreements, whether it be a charter, an organizational statement, a constitution, the group, any small or large group, when they come together, there's an orthodoxy, if you will, an agreement on why we are doing this. Within minutes, any group, after that establishment, someone will say, uh, I don't think we quite got it right, or uh, we're not orthodox enough, you guys are going a little off string here, or no, we started this with amendments in there in the orthodoxy, so let's start changing. In other words, there is no pure orthodoxy out there any place in any form in the world, even in a family, right? Even what love is between two people. This is why we got married, you know. But you're changing. Well, no, in other words, things like, uh, this the, the lack of, of realization of dynamism in the human condition is something that's really troubling to a lot of people. And, and once you accept it and you realize that everything requires um, another point of view, even among the faithful, there's another point of view that if it goes too far, you become a heretic and then you're thrown out. Or maybe you have to assimilated or maybe you can stay within the community and so I just wanted to make this general statement that what we're about to talk about is something that is beyond religion it's a human organizational social factor that every human being wants to put his own stamp on something his own interpretation and that always causes a contest of interpretations that's what Paul Ricoeur would talk about the contest of interpretations um, and it's, it can be done with goodwill or it can be done with fear and contempt. That contest, the attitude by which you engage that contest is everything. It, it will determine whether the group survives or not. So having said that, I've just laid the groundwork for what I call a subtle pluralism that exists all over the place, probably for 10,000 years of human history. There's been a subtle pluralism within any orthodox group or within any group, whether it's business, family, whatever. Now, having, if you all go with me with that one, um, why does a family stay together? Why does a company stay together? With these subtle pluralisms, how does it happen? Well, they trust each other at some fundamental level, 
that they can negotiate these pluralisms, these differences, and still keep the group together. And they, that, that trust is based usually on communication between each other, where they, people feel like you haven't gone too far. It's not that there are no limits, but you're within the bounds, right? We, we, can, as, we can assimilate you within those bounds. Now, what's happened today in France, for example, I've spent, I've lived there for a few years and I, I love France. I, I'm one of those Ameri weirdo Americans who's a Francophile. Um, <laughs> but they have an enormous problem. Uh, and that is that they, after the French Revolution, they had an assimilation idea that to be French meant you were secular in public. You could be privately religious, but you were secular in public. The public square was naked of idealism, right? They didn't recognize what you brought up in your comment, that secularism itself is an idealism, right? Mm -hmm. Secularism is itself a worldview. And, um, you know, they took it as the objective truth and all this other stuff being debatable superstition. Well, that, of course, in, in our 21st century isn't going anywhere. And so France has got the problem now of readopting itself into, my goodness, what are we going to do with a true pluralistic society? Because we brought an enormous number of Muslim believers into France, and I mean an enormous number, who are not going to assimilate. They are going to be believers, and, and the way they view their belief is it belongs in public. It, it infuses all their decisions. They can't fib about that and pretend they're secularists when they go down to the public square. Well, why so, hold the views if you can't share it in public? Right, exactly. <laughs> and so France has got that enormous problem. And as you say, within our own country now, the radical nature of difference, of different peoples who have different values, my goodness, who would have got, thought 20 years ago that people would say it's okay to have same-sex marriage in our country? You know, who, who would have thought? It was even bigger than that, in my opinion. Who would have thought 40 years ago that it's okay to marry without, or have sex generally without marriage, to, to be couples. In other words, there's some very deep things. I think birth control had an enormous uh, amount to do with this, technological factors. But I'm just saying things have changed so radically in our country with respect to values that uh, cannot be proven uh, as right or wrong, but are in the area of religion or ultimate concern, we now have this pluralistic problem in our country. It, it, is, um, it won't go, I hope, the way the, the French, because we have already uh, this notion in America that you can own your religion and be part of the public discussion. That was, however, as I mentioned earlier, easy for people to say when they were all Protestants. Right, right. <laughs> and their differences really didn't matter, you know, the, between the dominations. But now bring a Muslim in or an atheist in and give them equal rights in the public square. What have we done, right? What is this? What is this pluralism? Haven't we gone too far? It's, you know, the heretics are now taking over. And so, uh, that's where we are. We're at that classic moment where pluralism has gone wild and we don't know what boundaries there are to it. And so uh, to, keep, to keep the ship afloat, uh, Roger Williams would talk about a ship of state where uh, the, if, the, if the crew and the captains, even though they're shifting, if they agree, agree on the basic destination, yeah, they can put up with all sorts of of hassles on boat on the boat right but if they don't agree on the boat's destination they got a problem <laughs> and uh, at one level ultimate concern has not just to do with the methods of being together as a people but the direction and purpose for being a people and at that level that's where the religious conflicts come in in many of our discussions in our society now we should ask always why do you want that policy? And just burrow in deeply, and you'll often find it's an ultimate concern that is in conflict with someone else's ultimate concern, and that's why they're indifferent on this policy. And so uh, our country is, is going to have to learn all over again 
what it means to be truly pluralistic uh, and to have that trust grow between people who are rivals, who are not harmonized in their beliefs about these ultimate concerns. And so the deep question is, where does that trust come from? If we, if we don't agree on our ultimate concerns, if we don't agree on the direction of the ship or the destination of the ship, well, how can you trust anybody? And uh, I think you and I could have a conversation on that today. And that's one of the reasons why we're doing this. That's right. Let me do a little follow-up on that, press that a little bit further. Um, when I've had conversations with people in other religious traditions about this issue, the naked or the pluralistic public square, um, I've had some, I've had secularists who've argued for the secular public square because they've got concerns about religion. Uh, whether those are accurate or not, that's another question. And then I've had uh, conversations with pagans and people in minority religious traditions who also opt for that because they're tired of being excluded. And their, their thinking is, if I can't get a place at the table, then no one's going to sit at the table. Um, I think you and I would be opposed to the naked public square. We're opting for some way of addressing the pluralism. But how do we deal with what comes as a result in a responsible kind of fashion? So give me take it from the abstract to the concrete. There's a fascinating little minority religious movement called uh, the Satanic Temple based in Salem, Massachusetts. And they have uh, made a lot of noise and gathered national attention because they've challenged Christian privilege in the public square. So they've gone to states like Arkansas and the state capitol grounds and they've had a Satanic Baphomet statue that they wanted placed next to Ten Commandments monuments arguing that that's freedom of religion. One of the things they're very good at is using what could be construed as performance art to raise questions and challenge Christian domination in the public square. And the result from conservative Christians, predictably, has been that you're sticking your finger in my eye. Well, maybe sometimes we need to get a poke so that we can step back and, and look at the question. So it has raised serious issues, but more often than not, it's led to some kind of conflict. How, do, how can we do that productively so that with the waning of uh, Christian majority and hegemony and these kinds of things that everybody can have a place at the table? What, what are your thoughts on that? When, I, uh, when that happened in Utah, the same group or an affiliate group came to a little town called Pleasant Grove, Utah, where they had on their, on their town square, and this is, this is the this is a little city of maybe 20,000 people. Um, so their, their public garden is you know, very, very visible to everyone. Uh, and they did have a, a, a Mormon monument on that because the town was founded by 100% Mormons, uh, now called Latter-day Saints, by the way. Yes. Um, uh, back in the uh, late 1800s. Um, but the challenge came right there that the Satanists wanted to put up their monument. And uh, it became so obvious, like this other case, of where we are now, that this, it might, it, it might be happening today with the Satanists, but eventually uh, there'll be enough Muslims in this country where it's more than a tiny group testing the Supreme Court. It's a cultural reality, right? And so do we have on our public squares, literally places for religious monuments? Is that what the way we're gonna go in America? Do we have, um, that, that would be one way to do it. Say any public building where any religious monument goes, any, uh, all shall be able to go. And so instead of being massive, they'll all be little, <laughs> you know? Again, we're back, to, we're back to the polygon, right? The polygon. Uh, where if, if we're going to do it there, we're going to allow all voices. Um, we could go in a very commercial way and say, you've got to achieve a million adherents before you can get, get a big spot on the public square. So people have to vote for your religion effectively uh, by being members before you can get a place. Almost like the, you, know, you can't get on TV and, and run for president unless you have so much money. Otherwise, the, the TV would have hundreds of people on the screen. And so there, there is this pragmatic idea in a democracy that, yes, sometimes it's unfair to individuals. It's true. 
you've got to get a constituency before you can get a space to be heard. Otherwise, the cacophony of individuals would allow no one to be heard. And everyone kind of knows that, right? Uh, and so I'm, I'm talking pragmatically here to answer your question by saying either there'll be a way, I think, in our country where there'll be a limited uh, uh, pluralism, or they will make certain things naked, meaning there'll be no secular signs, no religious signs. It's just naked here. Right. The only thing we've got is a restroom. <laughs> you know, that is, that, oh, but, oh, I'm about to make a joke. Even restrooms now, are, you know, what, what's on the restroom? Contested spaces, yeah. <laughs> yeah, contested spaces. But uh, you see where I'm going with that. So I'm not, from, from a, I'm a pragmatist in this sense. I think we will find out in our country how to negotiate this when we see that enough people are really um, being left out of, the, of having a voice, some way we'll make a threshold uh, such that people who have that many voices will indeed get into the conversation on, on TV. Or, and uh, that, could, that could be the same case in many places. So, and then there'll be other places where the way we handle it is just say, uh, yes, like the Supreme Court has done so far, some religious monuments are so traditional, they've been there so long, that they're considered cultural monuments now. Not religious, right? Cultural. And so they allow them to stand just because they've been around that long. Um, of course, that's going on with, with the Civil War right now, that people are tearing down statues, and others are making, no, no, these are not these are not pro-slavery statues, these are cultural icons, right? right? Just leave them alone. And so that's going to be debated back and forth and the contests go on and I say, let it go on, right? We right. need to face the pluralism today um, of opinions on, on these issues. That's a, a great jumping off point into the next part of our conversation as we talk about the psychological dyna dynamics that are involved uh, in doing some research in social psychology for a grant from the Lobo Institute. I, it was just fascinating to me, and uh, you've got that background, as you've mentioned previously. The, the idea that we, we, uh, we have our assumptions about how we see the world, we have our values, we then baptize them, if you will, they become sacred to us, and we assume that everybody sees things the way that we do until we run into somebody or another group that doesn't. And we just can't fathom that possibility. If, if they don't see this and value these things the way that I do, they must be ignorant or, or evil or they're morally deficient uh, in our context today with the monuments. Um, somebody who doesn't support taking down these Civil War monuments, they must be racist. Uh, or if they, uh, on the other side, if you're on the right, somebody wants to tear down the, they must be fascists or, or Antifa or something like that. We, we, we demonize the other who doesn't share our particular uh, sacred values. Um, how do we get beyond that? How do we recognize, you know, we call them blind spots because we can't see them. How do we become more aware of this process that's going on with these sacred values, with our in-groups, and be, become at least more aware and try to understand that there's another perspective and the, the individuals who hold them, hold it. We've got severely deep differences, but that doesn't necessarily mean the other person is Adolf Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, poor old Adolf always gets brought in. Yeah, he's, he's always, <laughs> if it's not Obama or you know, Bush, it's you know, somebody, everybody's the Hitler of the decade, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> um, wow, well, uh, I want to make, one subtle response to that before I go to the question, and that is okay. when we talk about sacred values in these kinds of situations, I want our listeners to understand that you and I understand that there's more than just sacred values, that there are power structures, uh, there's money involved, right. there's security involved. If your group is in charge and has been for years, you want to stay there, whether it's political, religious, or anything. And we acknowledge that it's, it's part of our social reality that, that these, it's not, the sacred values are often mixed up with am I on top 
right. in the social structure? Do I have more influence or power um, in society? And who doesn't want that? Right. You know, we've got to all admit, right, <laughs> that yes, no matter what our politics is, even if they're egalitarian, there is an, there is in human nature, you want your kids to have piano lessons and, and, you, and, and you don't want to, you don't want to give up that so that someone else can have piano lessons because all of a sudden no one can have piano lessons, right? So, so you know, the, it's a very interesting situation we're in where power and, and what people call privilege are mixed up with this idea of, of deep convictions. Nevertheless, you and I and social psychologists all allow that there are deep convictions that aren't just Marxist-influenced materialist convictions, right? And so, having said that, defanging that tiger and that critique, uh, I will answer your question and say that uh, um, one of my favorite um, American philosophers, William James, wrote an essay many years ago called On a Certain Blindness in Human Beings. And his essay basically was a confession of his own on how he came to realize that he saw other people through the lens of his own experience. In other words, he thought other people were basically just like he was. They thought the same way, had similar feelings. Uh, the fact that they ate and, and metabolized and slept meant that they were all human and therefore they were all really just like he is. What his great awareness became, his great enlightenment was they're not. <laughs> that the blindness in human beings is that others really are coming from different perspectives, different experiences, radically different in many cases. And so um, if we could be aware of that blindness every day, it would help us enormously in checking this quick response. They gotta be idiots. Or um, where are they coming from? Or, you know, in other words, the, we would say, of course, we're in conflict with them. Of course. <laughs> what else should we expect? We are coming from very different perspectives. We have different views of things. Not a, Sometimes we can have similar values, but we can weigh those values very differently in a particular circumstance, right? Jonathan Haidt's work um, has been really great on this, showing how uh, Americans all have similar values, but the weighting they give to them is so different right. that, that the, on the left, you have policies and attitudes that seem foreign to the people on the right because of that different weighting. I won't go into that that detail, but I will just say that's brilliant social psychology uh, that reflects this blindness that we all have. So if you could get up every day and say, I'm looking in the mirror and I'm saying, oh, I'm blind. I'm a blind person. Every day if you look in the mirror, you said, I'm blind, even though I have sight, that would help you enormously. And it was not only with humility, but with a certain open questioning always instead of telling people what they think asking them what they think with the open expectation that it will be different than you we all love to hear people say just exactly what we think and we go oh yeah 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 right i mean friendships often are based on just finding someone who thinks like you do and on one level there's nothing wrong with that on another level however in a pluralistic world and society there's deeply that's a deeply flawed assumption that we can't be friends unless we think the same. And so, uh, again, we're back to this deep level of blindness to other people really being different than we are and trying to bridge it with communications that sometimes doesn't work because we haven't had similar experiences. So it takes more than a five minute chat, you know, to get into our differences. I mean, this is work and humans don't like work. You know, we're efficient beings. We don't like this problem of pluralism. What the heck? Can't we just get along with the, you know, don't bother me about your ultimate concerns. Just pass me the salt. You know, you want, you want 
be a little bit, I think, um, charitable to our brothers and sisters, fellow citizens who hate the idea of deep conversations and dialogue and all this stuff that you and I feel is necessary to help keep our country together because it's work. It's, really, it's emotional work. You, no one wants to be told they're blind. That's, you know, I don't want to be handicapped, you know? Well, I'm sorry, we're all handicapped. And that means we have to, you know, deal in a world as handicapped individuals and have to, get, you know, get over it and get out there and start doing the work that the handicapped have to do. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, perhaps I'm ranting on here too much on your question, but that's... No, no, you're fine. Just by way of follow-up, again, to make it more concrete, uh, how would you respond to the reaction that I get many times uh, of fear and disgust, fear of contamination or of legitimizing something that's perceived as evil. So for example, uh, in, I've got a lot of liberals in my uh, Facebook feed. Um, and uh, when I post items about uh, the need to, for these kinds of conversations and respect through difference and all that, the response is often, uh, well, that's like uh, uh, someone who's a victim of spousal abuse cozying up and being friends with their abuser or Years ago, you extended an, an invitation, the possibility of meeting Ahmed Adinejad from Iran when he was in power. I wasn't able to go, but I reached out to some fellow evangelical leaders. Would you like to be a part? And one of the evangelicals surprised me, who's usually supportive of uh, religious diplomacy. And he said, I, I wouldn't meet with him because that would be like legitimizing a meeting with Hitler uh, kind of a thing. So when, some, when the other is perceived as being evil, and, and dangerous and corrupting, and the initial reaction is to want to stay away for self-preservation. Um, there may be cases where that is the dynamic that's taking place, but I think far more often it's a perception. How do we work through those fears and get to the point where we're willing to have conversations and relationships with people that we uh, don't like and that we feel disgusted by? I think, give me a moment, because that's, that is a... That's not easy. That's a profound issue. I, I, I want to say this, that I come from a Christian background, and um, I like the teachings of Jesus, both his doctrines, if you will, and his praxis. Uh, you know, he... He was criticized for being among the, uh, the sinners. And his line was, well, I came to, to help the people in the hospital. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm here to help the sick, not, you know, I'm calling the sinners, not the righteous to repentance. And the implication there was, I've got to communicate. If there's any hope at all of change, <laughs> I've got to communicate. I've got to be with. Um, there is the risk, however of contamination, we all know that. Using, in our foundation work, we use the public health metaphor all the time, that one of the biggest fears in the world is a prudent fear. Here we are in COVID. This is a perfect time to talk about this. The prudent fear of being contaminated by a disease is analogous to what many people uh, feel when they allow religion of a particular type or secularism of a particular type to come into their group, into their society, because they know it will change that group in that society. There will be a change. Merely sitting in the ancient world, if you sat down at the table and ate with someone, that was a radical thing to do because it, it said that is a human being who can influence you. You wouldn't bring in the barbaros, uh, the the, uh, the barbarian, into your table, because you knew that would signal everyone in that society to see this person can influence you. Is, but if you thought the barbarian was too dangerous, you would not bring that person in. So this is prudence. On the other hand, we are now mixed up, whether we like it or not. Right. We're in a pluralistic world, and so um, that we can't be Amish. You know, we, 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 I don't think the idea of isolationism 
can work anymore. It used to be one of the options. I'm not gonna say that it's a, it was a great option. There's always a negative side to every option. But to avoid contamination, to avoid any possible negative influence, isolate, that's not happening. And, and we're realizing that more and more, especially I spend time in the Middle East. They have realized that greatly. The religious elites over there realize that they, they can't keep their people from being influenced by secularism and immoralities, plural, in the world that's happening, right? The internet and various other things have, have done, done this. And so what do you do about that? That's really what you're asking. And so uh, we need to, again, go Christian. We need to be, uh, what is it? Wise as serpents and gentle as doves. Mm -hmm. um, I think discernment is something that we just need to acknowledge as a uh, something that we need to teach our children that it's a uh, it, that it's wise to extend trust, but to quickly verify whether that extension was reciprocated, whether the the, the whether the person or the group was trustworthy. And what does that mean? I think that means this. Trust is based on at least three things. One is the motive. Is the person to whom or the group you're extending trust, do they really care about you and your well-being? Do they sincerely care about you and your well-being? And that well-being being defined by you. In other words, they're open to your view of your well-being. And and they care to honor that. Second, are they competent? Um, if you're trying trusting someone, if you're trusting a little kid, you know, and you give him your car keys, he might love you, Daddy, but he's going to wreck the car. He's not competent. So there's a level of competence when you're having uh, conversations or engaging in influence. You don't want to bring people who are incompetent into your life. They can really screw things up. And the third is a more subtle one: is resources that I don't need to go into, but Usually it has to do with their social and economic capital. Do they have the resources to support what they want to do to help you or to uh, be involved with you? So you trust someone, I'm saying, who has the right motive in your judgment, the right competence and adequate resources. That person is trustworthy. So to answer your question in, in this contamination issue, do we allow for mutual contamination. That's what pluralism is. It's allowing mutual contamination where persuasion on both sides is going to influence some change. And we need to be vigilant at all times if we come from a place of centeredness at all to say, is this contamination something that I can use to build my values, to build what I, tr what I value most? Or is it depreciating it? Is it tamping it down? And then if it's the latter, back out, back out. You can do that in a friendly way. You can say, nope, no more dinners. Um, you guys have been great, <laughs> but my dialogue is finished. And, and you can own that. It's not that you've been evil, but you just, you guys are evil, or, but I feel like I need to go other places now to get other influences. Right. That's a nice way of saying it. You know. We all have, we're all seeking influence every day from other sources. You, if, if it isn't working for you and if you don't feel like you've been edified by that experience, discern it and back out. Now, that doesn't mean you should claim these other people uh, should not be citizens of your country, but it does mean that they might be people who, who become your opponents in a strong way where you're trying to persuade them change and that comes back to a different point that I'd just like to finish on. You can engage with someone overtly as a rival and an opponent where your goal is to persuade change overtly or you can engage someone as a friendly influence where you want to have their influence in your life. I'm saying to you in both cases, over time, friends become a little bit rivalrous. You, you probably have that in brothers and sisters if you have any family. Mm -hmm. And rivals who are opponents 
also become influential on each other. <laughs> and so it's never completely one thing or the other, but with your primary motive is to be a persuasive opponent, you're, you're safer there in, in the sense that you're always on, on that edge of saying, mm, I, 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 I'm gonna make sure they don't influence me too much because I don't trust them completely. That's okay, that's reality, right? And so I've given you a long and rather, I think, complex answer that says, we've got to engage. Pluralism is engagement. How we engage is based on trust. And we start by extending a, a little bid out for trust. And we discern whether or not they're more friendly or more rivalrous. And then if they're in the rivalry end, continue engagement as persuasive rivals and opponents, okay? Yeah. Don't back off. Um, if, they're, if they are Hitler, of course, call the police. <laughs> you know what I mean? Don't, you don't need to engage someone who's, a, who's obviously out there to harm you. Right. you that, that's not the kind of engagement that I'm talking about. Call the police. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough issue and you could do a whole conversation just on that. But as our time draws to a uh, close, for this conversation, uh, one final question. We, uh, we've mentioned the loss of trust and social capitals decreasing. Um, we just don't trust each other in politics or religion and all kinds of venues. We're not willing to cooperate with each other. We're increasingly polarized. Can you offer a few practical suggestions on how we might start to counter this, regardless of which way things go, especially after the election's coming up here in less than a week, and uh, what kind of resources does the Foundation for Religious Diplomacy provide for that? Uh, you can go to our website where we, we talk about the way of mutual openness. Uh, you started a group um, among the evangelical community a few years ago uh, by having uh, neighborhood friendships where, uh, with people who were not evangelicals. Uh, I think in sociology, they call it contact theory. It's very simple. You, if you're not in contact with someone, the proximity, proximity matters. And if you're not in contact, you're not likely to have much trust. Um, so that's the first element of, of building trust is having contact. The second element is um, extending enough trust for vulnerability and intimacy to begin and what i mean by that is having dinner with someone is important that's a very anthropological beginning step but uh, taking a step with someone who you think is uh, a political opponent or a religious rival uh, taking the next step uh, we have found is I can give you this very practical advice that has worked 99% of the time. We find that to get to that vulnerable intimacy that allows for trust to really build, um, one way to do it is to say to someone, and this wouldn't be at a cocktail party, this would be not or at a barbecue, because it doesn't work there. But you could start at that spot and say, hey, I'd really like to get to know you a little better. Could we go to lunch this week, right? You get a person in a one-on-one. -on -one, and in that moment, you, you, you address this question. You say, to get to know you better, I'd like to ask you a question. And it could take some time for you to answer it. I'm gonna lean back and listen. If you agree to do this, I really wanna know the answer to this question. Could you tell me your personal story of how you came to your deepest conviction? I don't wanna know what your convictions are right now, that could be later, but I want your story of how you got there. And then literally lean back, open your body, sipping your coffee, or if you're Latter-day Saint, your Coke, and, uh, and just let that person riff on that how they came to their beliefs this is almost foolproof it puts the wall down and usually at the end of that and by the way we have found from a psychological standpoint usually that answer should take about 
at least 10 minutes. And when you ask, but here's another hint, when you ask it, um, keep eye contact and every once in a while go, oh, how old were you when that happened? Or what did you say? You know, was that your father or your mother? In other words, show them you, that you're following mm -hmm. their story. You're not critiquing it. You're going and trying to get more detail. It, it's, it's a miracle that, that gives them confidence that you're, you're actually listening and so they can open up more. Well, at the end of that, usually what happens is they say, well, I've taken off my clothes. Now I want you to take yours off. Tell me your story, right? And so you've had over a period of a half hour, an amazing experience with another human being that inevitably changes the psychological dynamic and builds trust between you. Then you can go into the contestational differences. You can go into the collaborative similarities, but it's based on this common willingness to expose how you came to your beliefs and it's uh, it's a wonderful thing so if if the listeners today can just get that much of going from a social setting to a private setting in a private setting taking the risk of asking someone to be very intimate about how they came to what they believe and then sharing it back and sharing that's a great way to begin trust between people who will remain often rivals and opponents in politics or religion, but they'll look across the room at each other and they'll wink. When they're arguing, they'll wink. If you know what I'm, right. it happens, I've been there. The, 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 the feeling of respect and care is there, even though the argument is intense or the, uh, the testimony is against. Can you uh, give the website address for the foundation and I think you're you're working on a, a book with some colleagues you want to give that a plug and a little preview <laughs> yes we're we're uh, three colleagues who have very different world views are, written, are writing a book this year I'm one of them on uh, the we're working on a title but it's something like um, is persuasion even possible anymore um, uh, on a positive note uh, we we might call it, uh, everyone's a little missionary, admit it. Um, you know, uh, that, that book, we're trying to elevate the idea that human beings need to engage and openly uh, own their values. Back to your public square idea. Um, say why you believe what you believe, not just what you believe, but how you got there. And, and, uh, that we believe will, of course, uh, bring great vulnerability, and it's not easy. It's, it's scary, especially when you're doing it in a very public setting. So in this book, we're, we're acknowledging how this is a gift to society. If you treat society this way, you're taking a risk. And we're, that's what this book's all about, is encourage people to take that risk. Um, as to the foundation address, it's, uh, religious-diplomacy.org, religious-diplomacy.org. And you'll read about uh, several things there. Um, and you can find the way of openness on that, uh, on that site. Also, we have a, the foundation is an investor in something called the World Table, worldtable.co. And if you're interested in journalism and having a place for uh, engagement with newspapers that is um, intense but not infested with trolls. We've developed over the last five years a very effective software that many uh, uh, newspapers are now adopting to have public conversations on the newspaper sites um, on difficult uh, questions uh, without being infested with trolls. So that's uh, also uh, people who agree to get on that site and comment, agree to follow the way of openness. So you can see, you go to that site, the way of openness is also listed there. So if you're not interested in a religious diplomacy site, go to a secular site, um, uh, worldtable.co, and you'll see that, uh, that there. Thanks for asking those questions, John. 
course, yeah. I encourage people to seek out those resources uh, in the uh, text introduction that will accompany this uh, video conversation. We'll have uh, links there so folks can follow those as well. Uh, we're at the end of our time for this conversation, but I'm always anticipating the next one. Uh, Randy, thank you for making the suggestion that we have another conversation about these important topics. Yeah. Um, what brought this up originally was the fact that we thought uh, people don't care about ultimate concerns or religions in the public square today. And I hope some people that were listening today were convinced that, hey, to be real, you have to have that as part of the conversation. Your ultimate concerns gotta be part of the conversation or you're not having a real conversation, whether it's in your home, uh, at church or in the public square. Yeah, well, hopefully this has given folks some food for that. Randy, I look forward to working with you to build our, uh, our conversation library for the Foundation for Religious Diplomacy. I do too, thanks for doing this, John.